Good morning and welcome to the first Sunday of uh, 2014. And what a Sunday it is. Uh, we were talking just a little earlier and somebody said, you know, people who show up at Parkview on this Sunday have to be gladiators. So I am glad to be in the presence of gladiators today. And each one of you, as far as I'm concerned, is a hero for uh, braving the elements and making it through the snow, the ice, and the plunging, uh, plunging temperatures to be here. I trust this is the place where God wants you today for a very good reason because you had to put up with a lot to get here. This is the first uh, Sunday of 2014. When I was asked a few weeks ago if I would uh, be the lead-off batter for this, uh, this year, you know, I didn't know what, what today was going to be like, but I knew that I was eager to um, draw our thoughts to a particular passage of Scripture today because the way we start off a year is important. And uh, I'm glad you're here today. I don't know what 2014 is going to hold for you, whether it's going to be uh, times of tragedy or triumph, times of grief or joys, times of confusion or certainty, probably all of the above at, uh, at various times. But I do know this, that um, 2014 is going to be filled with stories. Your life is going to have a variety of stories. In fact, uh, I've already heard some people who've had stories today of... Uh, of uh, getting out and uh, clearing, the, clearing the way to get here. But your life is going to have a number of different stories. And uh, we're going to be looking at a story in the Bible. But before we do that, I was fascinated by the story about the famous writer, Ernest Hemingway, who was known for his terse writing style. I'm a bit of a writer myself. I admire Hemingway's spare language. You know, there's not a lot of excess words in, in his stuff. But uh, Hemingway was also known, of course, for growing up in the Chicago area, Oak Park. But according to the story, Hemingway once bet some friends that he could write a short story in six words. His uh, friends took him up on the bet, and so uh, Hemingway got out a napkin, and he wrote down these six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn, his friends paid up. They considered that indeed a powerful short story. Short on details to be sure, but there is a scene, there is a plot, and there's a lot you don't know. Well, Jesus once uttered five words that are just as loaded with meaning as Hemingway's six words, and they've uh, come to be even more well-known. These are Jesus's five words. You must be born again. Like Hemingway's story, it's short, it suggests a, a fuller story. It's a bit spare on the details. But today I'd like to go into what some of those details might be. What does it mean to be born again? A lot of people think that being born again is like New Year's Day. It's a do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a, chance to, it's a chance to write down some resolutions that are going to point your life in a new direction and therefore you are born again. That's not exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said um, you must be born again. Let's look at the short account. It's uh, just a few verses in John chapter 3, which is page 1063 in the Bibles in the uh, chair racks if you're interested or if you've got it on your cell phone or if you'd like to look at the screen. All of those are, uh, all of those are legit. But uh, verse 1 in John chapter 3 goes like this. It sets the setting and introduces the main character. Now there was a Pharisee, a man among a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Just pause there. A Pharisee, of course, is someone who has studied the Bible for many years, and more importantly, 
tries to obey it. A person who takes the Bible very seriously and knows it cover to cover, at least the, you know, what we know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and uh, was a member, it says also, that of the Jewish ruling council. This was a, a body called the Sanhedrins. Only 70 individuals were members of this ruling council. It'd be the equivalent of a senator today, a man who was uh, charged with governing, governing Jerusalem and the uh, area around. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Just pause there a moment. Nicodemus came at night. Was that because he didn't want to be seen with Jesus? Or perhaps he wanted an extended conversation and knew that nighttime was probably the best time for an uninterrupted conversation? Either one. I don't know. Who knows? But he uh, he starts with a compliment, which was not which were not just empty words, especially among Pharisees. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Not all the Pharisees believed that. He said, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. There had been a controversy among the Pharisees whether the signs that Jesus was doing, healing the sick, helping the blind to see, uh, making lame walk, multiplying food, whether these were signs that came from God or if... uh, This miracle worker was doing them by the power of Satan, the devil. Nicodemus comes and says, Jesus, at least you and I, we know that um, these signs you're doing, they come from God. Well, Jesus replies, doesn't uh, doesn't acknowledge the compliment at all. Jesus uh, gets to the heart of the issue, anticipating what uh, Nicodemus was really there for, and said, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, I don't think Nicodemus was a uh, foolish man, and he didn't understand what uh, Jesus was saying. He was a very learned man, and he didn't understand. I think there's a reason because Jesus' words are not immediately self-evident what he's talking about. But with the benefit of the rest of Scripture and the benefit of uh, a few thousand years of history. Let's take a closer look at those verses to see what Jesus was talking about and why Nicodemus was confused. First, Nicodemus asked Jesus about going back into his mother's womb. He says, are are you asking us to go back in our mother's womb? Was he taking Jesus literally? Did he not understand a metaphor? No. Nicodemus was a bright guy. He certainly understood metaphors. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Bible that Nicodemus knew cover to cover, prophets were using striking and vivid metaphors to explain God's intentions for his people. For instance, uh, one of the most uh, famous was the prophet Ezekiel, putting it this way. He said, I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. I really doubt when Nicodemus read those words that he said, um, that heart of stone, was that granite or was that feldspar? Um, no, no, no. He understood that spiritual truths must be expressed in uh, figurative language. But Ezekiel gets even more graphic And I suspect that Nicodemus might have had this passage in the back of his mind when Jesus was talking about being born again. 
Because Nicodemus puts it this way. He, referring to God, he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Now there's an answer to that. Can dry bones live? Not not humanly speaking, but he but the uh, Ezekiel answers very wisely. Can these bones live? Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy, speak, speak to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and bones came together. Can you imagine that sound? A valley full of dry bones beginning to reassemble. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and the tendons and the flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. There's an old spiritual that perhaps some of you are familiar with, Dem Bones. Dem bones, dem bones, going to walk around. Dem bones, dem bones, going to walk around. And the thigh bone's connected to the knee bone, and the knee bone connected to the shin bone, shin bone connected to the ankle bone, and I'll hear the word of the Lord. That's, uh, that's from this, uh, this passage. But then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy. It's, it's not sufficient that the bones reassemble. Can bones come alive? Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath. From the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel, the bones of the dead, reassembled, reanimated, dare we say it, born again. Nicodemus was not unfamiliar with metaphor. The Hebrew Bible, as we've just read, frequently uses this kind of language. Israel being dry bones, needing a new breath of God, would have been something Nicodemus had probably taught on. Uh, He was very familiar with that. But the problem here is that Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's one thing to have the concept sort of generally in mind. It's another thing for Jesus to look you in the eye and say, you need to be born again. So when Nick was asking about uh, returning to his mother's womb, I don't think he naturally took everything Jesus was saying literally and physically and saying, how do I crawl back in the womb? No, I think Nicodemus was entering into the metaphor and saying something like this, okay, Jesus, I'll grant that we theoretically need to be born again. At some level, deep down, I long for that. In fact, that's why I'm here in the middle of the night to ask you about what it is that you are, you are teaching, what you're giving us. But how does an old guy like me do that? I've, I know my Bible, but I haven't had that kind of experience. How can somebody like me find a mother who can give me a birth like that? I'm grateful for my physical birth. Um, how do I get this kind of being born again? Well, Jesus answers his question with an even more puzzling reply. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, 
but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What you don't see in this English translation of uh, Jesus' words to Nicodemus is that Jesus is having some fun with Nicodemus. He's engaging in wordplay. He's a punster, if you will, here. And that's something I know a little bit about. Uh, In my day job, I'm a journalist, and uh, journalists work with words, and when you work with words, you learn to have fun with them. Forgive me, Jesus, if I'm misunderstanding you, but I think I see you having fun with some words here. My first job in journalism was as a copy editor on the the, uh, night desk of the Denver Post, a daily newspaper in Colorado, and I was assigned to the food section uh, my, you know, my first day, I was assigned to the food section. So we sat sat at a horseshoe-shaped table, and I was over here. The copy chief was at the top of the horseshoe, and uh, he would electronically assign articles to uh, each of the copy editors. We'd get the uh, we'd get the story, we'd um, copy edit it, we'd fact check it, and then we'd write a headline for it to the specifications of the editor who had decided how many uh, how many columns wide the uh, headline was going to be, and that sort of thing. Well. The first story I was assigned was a book review. It was written by a restaurant critic, and it was all about spices, where spices came from and how they could be used in various recipes. And it was a long review, you know, several, you know, probably 24 column inches long or something. For a newspaper, that's pretty long. And uh, even better for me as a copy editor, the headline was a six-column headline. It stretched all the way across, a banner headline, which means you had room to play with. And I thought... Book review about a spice book. I could either write a headline, restaurant critic writes book about spices, which would not be any fun at all, or I could have fun with it. So the only problem was I didn't know if my copy chief, my boss, had a sense of humor or not. During our interview, he had not. You know, he was a no nonsense, just the facts kind of guy. I'd never seen him smile, but I decided. I've got to do something with this with this story. We might as well find out right now if this job is going to be one I can enjoy or not. So I turned in the story to him, a book review about seasonings, with this headline. Food Sage's Spice Book, Gingerly Peppered with Timely Ideas. I hit the send button, sent it to my boss, and held my breath. I watched to see what he'd do. You know, he had a whole stack of stories to read, and I didn't know when he'd get to mine, but I was working on my next story, always keeping an eye on Roy, the uh, copy chief. His expression never changed. I thought... Has he got to my story yet? Surely that's got to evoke some kind of response from the guy. Either he'll fire me on the spot, or he will tell me, don't ever, ever, ever do that again, or he will just, even worse, just ignore me and pretend he'll not send me any good stories anymore. Uh, What was going to happen? Well, I noticed that Roy's expression never changed, but he got up and went to the printer. And he took a sheet off the printer, wrote something on it, went over the bulletin board, and stuck it up. Facial expression still totally deadpan. I couldn't wait. After Roy came back to his chair, I got up to go to the drinking fountain and made sure I walked by the bulletin board. There Roy had put on it, Shelley's first headline, nice job. I thought, I'm going to like working in this place. And I did. Why was that? Uh, Why was I going to enjoy it? Because they appreciated having fun with words. Sage, of course means more than one thing. Sage is a spice, but it's also an old wise person. I thought, okay, you know, ginger. Ginger is a spice, but doing something gingerly just means you do something carefully. If you can use a word where both meanings are coming into play, that's called having fun with words. 
Jesus was having fun with words in this uh, in this passage, but you don't. Uh, he doesn't use the word sage or ginger, but his double-barreled word is the word pneuma. It's the Greek word for air or wind or breath or spirit. It can mean any of those things. It means all of those things simultaneously, just like sage means a spice and it means a wise old person. Jesus, and we, of course, know the word pneuma from pneumonia, pneumatic, uh, just, and it has to do with, with air, breath, wind. Uh, in English, it doesn't have anything to do with spirit, but in, uh, in language of Jesus' day, both Hebrew and Greek share this same characteristic. It can mean all, all four of those things simultaneously. Here is what Jesus said to Nicodemus with the wordplay left in. Jesus said, flesh gives birth to flesh, but pneuma gives birth to pneuma. Don't be surprised that I say you must be born again. The pneuma blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the pneuma. Now, what does this mean? Several things. The most important is this. Being born again doesn't mean you're, you're starting a new... Uh, you know, you, <laughs> Being born again doesn't mean you have some New Year's resolutions. Born again means you are being born of the Spirit. You're born of the pneuma. You're born of this wind, air, breath spirit that Jesus was, uh, was talking about. Being born again isn't just starting over. It's having a whole different kind of birth. Not only are you born of the flesh, physically born, which is important and for which... You know, I, for one, am very grateful for my being born of the flesh. Thank you, Mom. But Jesus is saying you become spiritually alive in a different way than you become physically alive. Being born of the Spirit is a distinct, uh, a distinct experience. Being born of the pneuma has characteristics of wind and of spirit. And what's that mean? Well, number one, it means the pneuma, being born of the Spirit is unseen, but it's very real. Pneuma is needed for life. Have you ever had the pneuma knocked out of you? I remember climbing over a fence as a kid and landing wrong and having the pneuma knocked out of me, the wind knocked out of me. I was laying there. I couldn't breathe out. I couldn't breathe in. I was desperate for pneuma. And eventually, my diaphragm relaxed and <sighs> pneuma could enter, enter the lungs again. It was a wonderful experience. I've never taken breathing for granted again after having the wind knocked out of me. Maybe you've, you've been that way. Perhaps you've been swimming and you wind up having to stay underwater longer than you expected. The only thing on your mind is, how do I get to the surface to breathe in a lungful of pneuma? And you get to the surface, you break the surface, and how do you? And, and what's your reaction? Is it no? It's <gasps> and there's a there is a long full of air. That's, Jesus is saying that the pneuma, this, this spirit, this air, wind, breath, is, is necessary for this kind of spiritual life. But it's also unpredictable. So it is with the spirit. It comes from God, and thus it's going to, this, uh, this spirit is going to serve God's purposes, but you don't know where it's going to take you. But it's wherever you're directed, God is there. A number of you here are examples to me of this. Um, you've gone on missions trips. You've stepped up to work with middle school students. My wife went to Guatemala uh, a year ago to drill a well and teach hygiene in a place she'd never heard of before. And I'd have to say that, uh, you know, two years earlier, she would never have predicted she'd be in Guatemala d drilling wells and teaching hygiene. But the Spirit of God blows you places, takes you places you do not expect. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going going, but you're, when you are responding to the pneuma, God's spirit in your life, he is with you, in you, and, and you in him.
Second truth here that uh, comes from this is, is this. We are all born of the flesh, but not everyone has been born of the Spirit. Jesus says um, there's a second experience. Being born of the flesh is important. It's really good. It's essential, uh, but it's not sufficient. Not everyone has been born of the Spirit. A new kind of life is begun when we're born of the Spirit. We enter into life in Christ and Christ in us which is a life in his spirit. A while back, there was a, a, a commercial that perhaps you've seen uh, by the credit card company, Capital One. And uh, there was a, a couple that was making a purchase at a shopping mall. And uh, cashier tells them what the price is. They whip out a credit card. And as soon as they whip out the credit card, barbarians burst through the door and they come running down the aisles toward the couple with battle axes and broadswords in their hand. And uh, the point of the commercial, of course, is that finance charges on credit cards are like unleashing the barbarians because uh, they're, they can do brutal things to you. Well, the scene in that, in that commercial that uh, you know, stuck with me was as the barbarians are rushing down the aisle, they pass the perfume counter, and the clerk behind the perfume counter takes out a little bottle of perfume, and apparently the barbarians don't smell very good, but uh, as they came running by, she goes, and spritzes them with a little perfume as if spritzing barbarians with perfume is going to change them in any way. Uh, it might make them smell you know, a little bit better for um, half a second, but it's not going to change what the barbarians are like. That's why the, you know, the scene was, I found the scene funny. Well, trying to clean up a horde of bloodthirsty barbarians with a few squirts of perfume is uh, what we're doing when we think that life transformation can be, uh, can be done with human effort. You know, you know, I'm just going to try harder this year to lose a few pounds or start a new diet or um, exercise or be nicer to my brother who drives me nuts. That kind of life transformation probably is not going to happen in the flesh. Jesus says that life transformation requires being born of the Spirit, which is a, an inside-out kind of transformation. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Perfume gives birth to perfume. Jesus didn't say that, but he meant it. Uh, but a new spirit will only be born of a new spirit. This leads to the next point. Those born of the spirit, and only those born of the spirit, begin to develop a family resemblance of God's spirit. When you're born of the spirit, you won't be God, but you'll begin to take on family characteristics. Now, at Christmas, we had uh, our three kids with us, and we had three grandkids. In fact, we had three kids under age three at our house for Christmas, which meant a couple of things. There was a lot of commotion and joy and happiness, but there was also a lot of noise and activity. Um, I don't think that the moments were very few when all three kids under age three were uh, asleep at the same time. You know, it seemed like they were timing their, uh, their wakeful moments. But one of the things we did when we had uh, three generations there was to get pictures of the grandkids' parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents as close as we could get to the age of the little ones. And uh, we started saying, do you see any family resemblance? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see those eyes. Those, you know, she really has her daddy's eyes. Oh, and I see his... Uh, oh, doesn't that look like Uncle Bailey? And, oh, I, I see Grandpa Jansen in, uh, in, in those facial features. And we began to see, you know, physical uh, family characteristics in even these... Uh, little tykes. Well, 
When we're born of the Spirit, we won't have physical resemblance to Jesus, but we'll begin to take on some of the characteristics of his Spirit. St. Paul talks about this when he talks about what is characteristic of the flesh and what's characteristic of the Spirit. He says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Nothing, Nothing profound here. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like... That's, we can get that from the people around us. That's of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit, the family resemblance of the Spirit, are things like this. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what being born of the Spirit produces. It's a resemblance to God's Spirit. It's not something that can be seen in a photo but it's seen in attitudes and actions. There's another trait of being born of the Spirit, which is distinct from being born of the flesh. Being born of the flesh produces a sense of self. Sometimes it's a healthy sense of self. Sometimes it's an unhealthy sense of self. But when we're born of the flesh, uh, I can tell you even our kids under age three began to develop a sense of self and to understand the meaning of the word mine. Uh, When we're born of the flesh, we develop a self-centric uh, view of the world. This is, you know, the solar system is heliocentric and it sort of revolves around the sun. Uh, being born of the flesh means your life revolves around you. That's that's just one of the one of the traits. When we're born of the spirit, it produces the capacity to get outside of that solar system to realize there's more than just revolving around oneself. Uh, Jesus says this is a trait of. Uh, of the Spirit, and it's a trait of um, the family. He says, it's a trait of God the Father. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Being children of your Father in heaven is the same way of saying born of the Spirit. Uh, offspring, offspring of the Father, offspring of the Spirit. You do things that people born in, only in the flesh find odd and unnatural, like loving other people as much or more than yourself. How odd is that? Loving even enemies. That's really strange. Nobody just born in the flesh, would that would make no sense at all. There's nothing abnormal about loving those who love you, but uh, God says when you begin to, to be able to put yourself in someone else's situation, that means you're born of a different spirit. You've got to be, something, you've got to be born of something other than the flesh to love enemies. The next verse shows how God does this. He says, look at what God does. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the Middle East, rain is a very good thing. It's a blessing. And he says he sends rain on the good and the bad. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect or mature or complete. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, he says. And note the family resemblance. What's the Father like? He does good to those who love him, and he does good to those who don't. The Father sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, doing good to both. So those born of his Spirit will show those kinds of family characteristics as well. Now this gets down to the payoff question. How does being born of the Spirit happen? I wasn't aware when I was born. I, uh, I was there, but I can't remember it. I suspect that most of you are that way too. You, didn't, uh, you, you weren't able to choose the time of your birth. And yet it happened. Uh, Being born of the Spirit happens in a little different way. It's at this point that the most quoted um, Bible verse for many years uh, uh, summarizes what Jesus was communicating to Nicodemus. Here's how it starts. 
Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It starts with believing in Jesus, trusting Jesus. What does it mean to believe in him, to trust in him? Well, it means to live aware of him and his presence in your life. The fact that you are here today on a really lousy, uh, blizzardy day probably indicates that there's at least something in you that is alive to the Spirit, that there is something that is prompting you to say, there's more here than my own convenience, there's more here than my own comfort, there's something more that I need to seek out in life. Trusting that Jesus, trusting in Jesus means that you are aware that God's designs for your life may be a bit different than your own designs for your life. It means trusting that, um, that Jesus is who he says he is. He says that he is that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that uh, people do not come to the Father except through Jesus. Believing in him is trusting what he says. Trusting Jesus means trusting that he came to earth on Christmas to give his life to provide for our redemption. It means we trust him for our eternal salvation. It means that uh, we trust that he rose again to provide us with a new life, and we trust him to redeem our life right here and right now. The Bible also says that uh, whatever your life situation, if you trust him, And if you love him and are called according to his purposes, that God promises to work all situations in your life for good. Being able to believe that, being able to trust in that, means that the Spirit of God is at work, has been born in your life, and is drawing you into a life in Christ and Christ in you. Well, the first step is to believe in Jesus and his deep, deep love for us. We're going to move now to the time of uh, communion, recognizing uh, what Jesus has done for us and what he has, has offered us. Before we do, we're going to be passing out elements, and I would like to invite you as the elements are passed that you take the bread and you take the cup and to be thinking about the words of this song, about the deep, deep love of Jesus and the invitation that he extends to you.